Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. For this month's House Calls podcast, we're going to do something really different, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. I'm joined by Rob Freeman, the president of Kane Brothers. Rob and I have been talking recently about the bigger trends in the U.S. healthcare economy as we head into 2023, and we're going to share our thoughts with you today. As you'll hear in our conversation, we both think that 2023 might be a paradigm-shifting year in the healthcare industry. With that, let's welcome Rob to our show. Rob, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers like you are always in. Hey, Dave. Thank you. It's great to be speaking with you again. I think we've done one of these uh, each year at the beginning, more or less the beginning of the year for at least the last six or seven years. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Whether or not 2023 is you know, the year it all changed, I, I don't know. But I do absolutely believe that it's an inflection point, and we will see it that way for probably uh, many years to come. I got to say, Rob, I always enjoy these beginning of the year conversations and the pace of activity is picking up. We're out of COVID. The economy is upside down in a lot of ways, but also roaring ahead, guns and butter. So we'll have to just do our best to sort through it. So let's set the stage for our conversation this way. As you know, at the end of every House Calls podcast, I like to ask each Kane Brothers banker for a big, bold prediction about the U.S. healthcare industry. At the Kane Brothers Annual Private Healthcare Conference last October, the Kane Brothers staff decided to have some fun with this idea, and they asked a number of the participants at the conference for their own big, bold predictions, and Key Bank has created a video of that, which will be available with this podcast. It's really good. There were some really interesting and provocative observations. So, Rob, what was your take? Well, let me set the stage first. This conference attracted about 500 people, leaders from throughout the healthcare economy, from every sector, excluding pharma and biopharma. That's not a space that Kane Brothers is active in, but every other part, providers, payers, services, health tech, life sciences. We had senior executives and leading investors, typically private equity or venture capital investors. So folks who were living it, who were investing in it throughout healthcare. And we had about 40 or so interviews with them, spontaneous. Nobody had a chance to prepare their thoughts. And, you know, it was fascinating to listen to. I encourage our listeners to go to our website or social media and listen to it. But if we did do a word cloud, you know, to show visually what the key themes are, wouldn't be super surprising. And what are they? Well, obviously, value-based care, obviously, digital health personalization, the move out of the hospital into the home, those kinds of themes, as well as consolidation in the industry, came up again and again and again. But I loved hearing about it, Dave, from you know each different perspective, from a different vantage point, from a different level of experience in healthcare. I found it to be really, really interesting. I got to agree with you. And a couple of things struck me, sort of big picture, Rob. One was, by and large, the respondents were optimistic. 
they were coming from all over the healthcare industry. And, and obviously, it's a massive industry and people will tend to focus on the areas they know best. So we get the whole range of the industry, which is interesting in and of itself. But by and large, they were optimistic in the sense that change is not only coming, but that change will be more beneficial than not, particularly on the value-based care front and personalization and consumerism. In fact, there was only one real pessimist in the group out of the 40 who basically said, I've been doing this for 25 years, healthcare for 25 years. We haven't really changed the way we deliver healthcare still through a primary care physician in a hospital. And 10 years from now, it's going to be exactly the same way. <laughs> but that was only one out of 40. Right. So. And, and listen, you and I, having been around this industry for over 30 years each, understand that. The fact is, is that, you know, there hasn't been as much change as is necessary and it will continue to take time. I think the thing that is so exciting and the cause for optimism right now is that there's this amazing coming together of the various elements that it takes, business models, the utilization of technology, both digital technology as well as medical technology to actually effectuate the changes that are necessary. But the gentleman who made that comment, sure, there's some elements that are true. There are probably places that 10 years from now, you know, will still be entirely fee for service, no risk, no value based care and so forth. But I think that we'll look back at 2023, 2022, 2024, and we'll say this was the period of time where the industry actually pivoted to a new way of doing things. And that, of course, comes with winners and losers. And, and a couple of the bolder predictions were one that for-profit healthcare would dominate and therefore we'd see the decline of nonprofit healthcare. Pretty interesting. And then the other, that the big payers would become so dominant that the government would break them up. So again, more activist, optimistic, and different with real winners and losers. You know, Dave, I'll jump in there. You know, those two predictions, one about what happens to the health systems and particularly the not-for-profits, but also regulation, you know, coming and uh, doing something about the large payers that are consolidating, you know, pretty much every vertical that they can. When you have an industry that is largely paid for by the government, it's quite logical that people should be predicting that there will be changes related to government policy. Tax exemption for hospitals, I know you just recently wrote an article about that. We probably shouldn't go down that rabbit hole on this particular conversation. <laughs> but you know that I also have some very strong feelings that the tax exemption yeah. for thousands of hospital systems is not the right path forward. But also the pace of change in the payer world is moving so quickly, mostly with just M&A activity. They have a lot of capital, obviously, particularly coming out of the pandemic. And so the acquisitions that we're seeing them do are in many ways great and part of the path towards value-based care. But we do run the risk that those payers become so large that in certain markets, they truly are you know, monopolistic. Oh, absolutely. Your comment on tax-exempt hospitals also applies to the tax-exempt health plans. And I know Kane Brothers advised on Elevance's acquisition of the Louisiana Blues. But one of the things that's going to come out of that is a pretty major foundation in Louisiana, probably dedicated to social determinants of health in some form or another. So we could see some examples of that where the value proposition of conversion results in a real tangible asset for the community 
that's much more visible and ultimately maybe more effective than the current configuration of just granting tax exemption to both payers and providers. In a capitalist society and system like ours, we have to always consider where is their capital available and how can it be deployed for the betterment of everybody, not just shareholders of various enterprises, but communities. And I think that what that announcement about the old anthem acquiring Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana is, as you said, you know, the ability to create a very large, has not been publicly disclosed, but over a billion dollars foundation in the state of Louisiana is, in fact, I think, a logical outcome of a very capitalist transaction, an acquisition of an enterprise that, you know, essentially operated in the world of tax exemption. And I think we probably will see more of that, whether it's with the Blues or other tax-exempt health plans or health systems. It makes sense. Hard for boards and CEOs and so forth to wrap their head around because we've had a system like in place here for half a century, well, for much longer than that, you know, for a century or longer. But I think that it is causing people to uh, open their eyes and broaden their aperture on thinking about those types of opportunities. Thanks for that summary, Rob. Really interesting. Perhaps the most provocative predictions came from Zika Manual, one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. Let's hear what he had to say. So I'm going to make two. One is a tactical and one is a sort of more strategic. The tactical one is we'll have a thousand fewer hospitals. We're just going to have a lot of hospital closed. We're going to move a lot more services out of the hospital. It's cheaper. Patients like it better. And there's no reason to be in the hospital for many, many things. The more strategic one is I think we're heading to a crisis. I do think that the dysfunction of the system and most interestingly, the people who are in the system, CEOs of hospitals and health systems, CEOs of insurance companies, think the system is broke and they can see it. All of them are still acting in their own self-interest, but the system I think is very dysfunctional. And I do think there's gonna be a major, major crisis in the next five years. So Zeke gets paid to make these kinds of predictions, Rob. Kane Brothers also gets paid for tactical advice that gets their clients ahead of the curve and in a position to take advantage of changes that are coming in the marketplace. What's your take on Zeke's observations? I can't say whether or not it'll be a thousand hospitals or 500 or whatever number that won't be here a number of years from now. Dave, you and I, you know, probably both recall on some of our listeners that there used to be about 8,000 hospitals in the United States. And I believe the number today is in the 5,000 zip code. Part of that is because they've, you know, taken two hospitals in a community and put them together, but others have closed to the great dismay of many rural communities in particular. But what I will say is if you go back to these comments that people made at our conference interviews about predictions, there was really only one consistent loser that was either directly or indirectly referred to by pretty much all of our guests and speakers, and that was the health systems. You know, when they talk about value-based care, obviously they were alluding to or specifically referring to the primary care-based businesses that are outpatient only. There were a number of comments about hospital at home and about ambulatory care and so forth, trends that we have been all living with for a long time. But I think that Zeke's point is about who's gonna be the loser. And it doesn't have to be the hospitals and health systems, but I think given the financial losses that they've been incurring over the last year and a half, two years, 
particularly since the government's support for COVID has gone away, is and should be a material wake-up call. Because if they don't get with the program of these various trends, then I think Zeke's prediction, you know, unfortunately and sadly for a lot of communities and, and employees may come true. Yeah. So let's dig into this a little bit, Rob, the provider perspective, the health system perspective. When you're advising health systems, how are you framing that conversation? What are the points that you're trying to get across? The discussion that we've had over many, many years with them, you know, often would be about how are they financing in the bond market or the bank market, right? It was all just about debt capacity. And well, you're a former public finance banker. You know that world incredibly well. And so it was always about, okay, there's capital available. It's actually very inexpensive capital. And that's how these businesses have been funded. At this point, when you've got declining margins, you've got everybody not just nipping at your heels, but frankly, biting at your legs, you've got to think about more than just availability of capital. You have to think about how do I improve cash flow and how do I make sure that I've actually got an ability to be a leader you know, in these changes. And the thing that I really like to think about and hope that we're talking about, that our bankers, the Cane Brothers, are talking about with health systems, is the fact that they have a huge, huge asset. And it's not just their buildings and property and their balance sheet and their reputation, all of which are profound, but it's that they do have the scale. And if they take it and harness it the right way, I think that they should be able to be at the front. Why are the insurance companies, right? Why are those the only parties that you know, have the ability to vertically integrate into primary care and so forth. The hospitals and health systems have to make sure that they can run their businesses in a manner that generates margins, but they have a big, big advantage over lots of smaller businesses if they can act, be nimble and entrepreneurial. And that's been hard. That's been nearly impossible for most large systems. Yeah. So as you're looking at capital formation broadly and thinking about the different assets that health systems have, is it time for them to reconfigure the portfolio, take advantage of some of the market opportunities to get well-paid for some of these assets, maybe while creating some strategic alignment to guarantee business coming into the doors and so on? We've got a lot of new types of providers that are emerging. We obviously have this movement into personalized care delivery and consumerism. <laughs> not consumerism, not something health systems are particularly well known for. In fact, just the opposite. So how should they think about their portfolio of assets and reconfiguring it in ways to build the type of service platform that you're talking about that truly solves customer needs, delivers real value to the community, that positions them for long-term sustainability? Just as a lot of large corporations in the United States over the last year have decided that they needed to materially rationalize their businesses, think about General Electric, think about J&J, you know, getting ready to spin off their entire consumer business. That's where they started was consumer, and it's going to be a separate public company. Hospitals and health systems have to think about their businesses in a similar manner. So let me give you an example or two, maybe. Typically, when our bankers are speaking to the C-suite of a hospital system that's thinking about rationalizing their asset portfolio, that what they think about is selling 
marginal hospitals. Mm. And they, you know, that's fine. You know, that trend has been going on for decades and perhaps it, you know, makes sense in a lot of cases. But think about it from a capital formation perspective. A hospital these days with a typical operating margin might sell for, you know, six or seven times EBITDA if there's a buyer. And by the way, if you can get the FTC to clear it for antitrust reasons, if it's an in-market buyer. So, so you can get six or seven times, maybe eight times EBITDA for a hospital business that's making money. Those same hospital systems, and now I'm, I'm talking here about larger systems, academic medical centers and otherwise, have, in many cases, very large physician groups. They've spent tremendous amount of capital over the years buying physician practices in their markets, obviously to protect and enhance the referral stream. But think about this. Physician practices in this market and for some time traded probably 16, 17 times EBITDA. And I would submit, and we talk about, we are talking with our clients about this, that they could both raise a significant amount of capital, but also maintain a commercial relationship with another owner of that physician practice and sell it at a very, very attractive valuation. I think that's what businesses are supposed to do. It doesn't matter what their tax status is. I think they're supposed to be thinking about what do we do for our community to make sure that we can thrive. And we see this happening you know, pretty regularly with physician practices trading for those kinds of multiples. We have not seen many hospital systems engage in that conversation yet, but I think we will and we should. Well, that's terrific. And great synthesis of the market overall and the dynamism of capitalism and how the market itself creates opportunity, but it's also predatory. And if companies can't keep up with market trends, they become part of somebody else's company or, or go out of business. So markets have a way of refining the essence of the truth in fundamental ways that are hard to ignore. And we've got some of that going on with hospitals right now. We already talked about conversion when we were discussing the Louisiana Blues. Any other thoughts or observations you want to make about conversion to for-profit and what that brings along with it? I mean, I'm actually of the opinion that there are advantages to nonprofits paying taxes in the sense that they relieve themselves of the burden of justifying their public benefit. They just pay their taxes like HCA and others do, and then can run the place the way they want to run them. Anything else you want to say on the, I guess, on the conversion topic, Rob, and what that brings? Yeah, well, the other thing that happens in that scenario is they get access to a form of capital that is abundant, meaning, you know, the public equity markets, the private equity markets, mm -hmm. which are so flush with capital that I think that in our system, you know, for health systems to, you know, have only three means of raising capital, you know, namely the tax exempt bond market, obviously operating cash flow, but that's been, as we talked about, very challenging. And then the third is philanthropic uh, giving. The reality is that in the healthcare economy, there is hundreds of billions of dollars of capital waiting to be deployed and anxious to be deployed in healthcare. And those health systems, if they chose to go a path where they could access that, I think they could do a lot of good for their community. You know, I'll give you one other example, Dave, and this is public information, large system that most of our listeners are familiar with called Novant. 
at the end of last year, entered into a transaction with a very large private equity firm, TPG, which has a platform business in the diagnostic imaging center business. And this is a business that not everybody, you know, likes. Some people think that, you know, diagnostic imaging is not a great place to invest, but that's that's neither here nor there. The fact is TPG does, and their business is a growing one. So Novant entered into a transaction where they sold all of their imaging assets to this business that's uh, owned by TPG because they felt that, you know, the valuation was attractive. They could use the capital that they received in a meaningful manner. But they also kept a small equity interest in that larger imaging business. So they sort of got their cake and eat it too. And I think that this issue of conversion would or could afford some of these health systems that kind of opportunity that they ought to be thinking about. So, yeah, I want to be clear. I don't believe that every hospital in the country, every safety net hospital, you know, should lose their tax exemption or anything like that. But I do think that you can absolutely combine mission and margin, mission and making money. And I frankly think that is what most large health systems think about anyway. They talk about it. They talk about their margins. They talk about making money. Just that right now, that is incredibly difficult for them to do, which may be what precipitates some of the changes that you and I are talking about. You know what I love about that Novant example that you just gave, Rob, is conversion doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? I mean, Novant remains a nonprofit healthcare system, but this particular piece of their business is now going to be within a for-profit entity in partnership with TPG and their imaging business and benefit from the scale and sophistication that comes from that. Another example along those ways, an older one was when Baylor partnered with USPI on their ambulatory centers. And when they ultimately sold out of that position, they got a massive return. So it does become another form of capital formation or can become another form of capital formation too when the ownership interest in the joint venture increases over time and a company can choose to monetize that. So it's not all or nothing. Right. It's really interesting. It is. And I come back to, you know, this point about the advantage that large health systems have is that they're multi-billion dollar organizations, whether they're regional or, or larger than that, they have all sorts of assets that they have been, I think, you know, myopic in thinking about. And this is exactly the time that you can't afford to be myopic. You know, there was a at the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco, I heard about a company. I, I don't attend the actual event itself, so I don't get to see those presentations, but there was a large tax exempt system. This has been publicly reported. I'm not gonna say the name, but they lost over a billion dollars operating cash flow last year. This is not like on you know, write downs of assets. This is actual negative cash flow. And the next sentence or the next paragraph, perhaps, in the presentation was, but we're still financially strong because we were able to access the bond market and issue a billion dollars of debt. That's not the right way to think about it. Issuing more debt is, well, it's something our country has done for a long time. Don't want to go there. But it's not the answer to an operating problem. The answer to an operating problem is actually rethink your business. Think about, A, how to improve margins. Obviously, labor costs need to get fixed and so forth. But it's also think about yourself as a healthcare enterprise, not just a hospital enterprise. Maybe it even means think about, you know, a broader market, not just 
you know, a very narrow footprint, but think about what you can do for healthcare, you know, in a region, things like that. That's what I think if these were corporate entities, they'd be thinking about and talking about and acting on. And that would probably be a really good thing to go back to Zeke's prediction of all these hospitals that'll, you know, shut down and go out of business. That's what we're trying to avoid with some of these ideas. Yeah. And I think it's a flawed generally in sort of nonprofit managerial uh, orientation is that many organizations use an external third-party process where they rating agencies come in and evaluate an organization's ability to repay its debt. They use that as a proxy for the long-term sustainability of the organization. So if you get an A rating on your debt, that means you're an A company with everything that implies in an equivalent sense in the corporate world. But rating agencies only have a two-year outlook and they can always change their mind. And the fact that you have a good rating today doesn't mean you'll have a good rating next year or the year after. And so I do think having this broader corporate perspective on organizational value, the way you get in an analyst report on the overall health of a for-profit publicly traded company would be very useful in the nonprofit healthcare industry. And it's, it's missing because Last time I checked, unlike the U.S. government, uh, health systems can't print their own money. So at some <laughs> point, the market reality comes back into play. But they sort of, you know, have printed their own money by just drawing on the, you know, on the bond market forever. Yeah. And in a way, that's how they've done that. But when you've got companies like, you know, the big tech companies, Amazon, you know, buying one medical and, you know, rapidly building up also their pharmacy business, Obviously, you've also got, you know, Google and Apple that are getting deeply into healthcare. And of course, then the retailers, Walgreens, Boots Alliance, uh, CVS, of course, this week announcing the, the acquisition of Oak Street. When you've got, you know, incredibly well capitalized companies that are thinking into other lines of business, if these other large players, Blue Cross Blue Shield plans or, or health systems are not thinking about what do I need to do to bring care closer to the patient the way our guests at the conference talked about? Or how yeah. do I really move yeah. from fee-for-service value? Or how do I really bring digital health into the world of my patients? If they're not doing that, then, of course, the prediction will come true. And there's just it shouldn't happen that way. So that's, you know, to me, it's not doom and gloom. Zeke's quote is, a little, you know, it's pretty gloomy. But I tend to look at it, I think, like you do. I look at it from an optimistic perspective that all these things are happening. And hopefully people like you and, and Zeke and, and perhaps my colleagues at Kane Brothers can help these large players really think more broadly about how to get with that part of the uh, changing economy. Yeah. Boy, that's such a great point, because at the end of the day, and your comment about mission and margin related to this, the hope here is that the U.S., which as a nation underperforms other advanced economies in healthcare, we spend more and yet our people are less healthy, can actually reverse that trend and maybe even leapfrog some of these other countries by really unleashing the American innovation machine on these seemingly intractable problems and suddenly have our healthcare costs going down as our people are getting healthier 
while the rest of the world is struggling with the opposite problems. That's really the hope. That's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I think it's part of what gets us all up in the morning, trying to figure out how to how to reorient the system in ways that can really deliver for the American people. No question about it. It's been the reason that, you know, when I first learned years ago about Oak Street, uh, when it was a startup, uh, or ChenMed, I recognized that these businesses and lots of others are game changers. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to take a long time. They're only addressing a tiny part of the overall, you know, MA and Medicare market today, but they are going to continue to change the way care is delivered. And that and all of the related or offshoots of that, not just value, but, you know, what does it mean? What does value-based care mean? What does ambulatory care mean? What does, you know, care at home mean? What does more personalization mean? You know, it's no surprise or shouldn't be that Oak Street and ChenMed and, and other, you know, successful companies in that space have developed their own electronic medical record. Yeah. Because Epic and so forth couldn't really do what they needed. And we need to get to a place where there is obviously interoperability. That was one of the predictions that one of our panelists made that I agree with. If we can really get to a place where all these systems are talking to each other, you know, it'll be a great thing. But these value-based companies have recognized that there is nobody who's created the right kind of medical record. So they created it themselves. And that's, that's great American innovation. I just love that. And that's what's going to help drive, you know, these businesses and this model for really profound growth going forward. Wow. Well, this has been really fun, as I thought it would be and always is, actually, and provocative to boot. And we've been spending a lot of time jumping off of Zeke's prediction about hospitals closing and a potential crisis in the industry. But now it's accountability time for you and me, just like we did with Zeke. Let's play the predictions you and I made last October and see whether there's anything we'd change. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. In my 35 years in the industry, we're seeing the most innovation that I've ever seen. I think that there is a wave of technology, of consumerism, of, of payment reform that is really leading to major, major change in the industry. So what I think is going to happen, I actually think that we're finally going to begin in the next five years to achieve that holy grail of delivering better care at lower cost using technology based on the innovation of all these companies that are here and others. And frankly, I think we're going to see a very, very different healthcare economy five years from now than we've seen five years ago, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I'm really excited about it. I believe U.S. healthcare will change more in the next 10 years than it has in the last 100 years. We're still largely practicing medicine the way we did after the Flexner Commission, and it's all spinning apart as we speak. It's Oz before Dorothy showed up. Healthcare systems are the only businesses in the history of the world that have monopoly pricing power that lose money. So we're beginning to see the unraveling of the nonprofit healthcare system. Simultaneously, we're getting massive investment in venture and private equity that are creating new business models that ultimately will deliver on the promise of better care at lower prices with better customer service. And then finally, with genomics, people focus mostly on precision medicine and what that's going to do, but it's also going to revolutionize prevention. So we will be able to tell in the not too distant future, four or five years in advance, whether you're going to get cancer, 
heart disease, Alzheimer's, and we'll be able to address it. So the cost of our budget going to prevention, which today is 2%, will grow to 10, 15, 20%, and that'll shake things up too. Well, Rob, one thing always seems to be true. I'm definitely more long-winded than you are. (laughs) But I'm struck by the fact that we're both upbeat and optimistic in our predictions, even while all of this activity is swirling about. We only made these predictions last October, you know, five months ago. Is there anything you'd add to what you said or change? Wouldn't change anything. I think that said it all. What I would say is anybody who's listening to this podcast is likely somebody who has the ability to effectuate in some small way some of this change that is happening, and I encourage them to do so. Rob, this has been, as always, just a great discussion. I encourage our listeners to seek out the video and listen to the bold predictions. I think you'll enjoy that. It's only about 15 minutes, shorter than what we're bringing to you today. And I also encourage listeners to look out for future house call commentaries from the Kane Brothers bankers throughout the coming months and years. And I predict, this is a bold prediction I absolutely know will come true, that what we're going to be talking about with the bankers over the coming months and years will hew pretty closely to the conversation we've had today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So we've got a lot of change coming, and that's going to change a lot of things. So in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make all of our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. So thank you, Rob. Thank you, Kane Brothers. And good luck to everybody. Thank you, Dave.